Well, excellent. I'm tempted to just do the congregational prayer and call today after a time of worship like that, but you are not that lucky, so stay seated. Uh, very good. Uh, what a wonderful time. Isn't it amazing how even with just a guitar and two beautiful voices to lead us, we are moved in worship. Uh, what a wonderful song. That, I really enjoyed that song so much. Uh, hallelujah. He has broken every chain and salvation is in his name. That is who we are. Uh, we are called to be the people who make disciples of Jesus Christ, to point others to follow Christ, to be able to know what it is to sing a song about the one who's broken every chain. That true salvation is in his name. This is our calling as a church family, and it's our invitation to you. If you do not know Christ as your king, if you sing a song like that and the lyrics sound alien to you, that you can know Christ in relationship you can become a follower of Christ and watch what He does in your life as you aim to follow after Him. That is our DNA. That is our marking as a church family that we are a people for the glory of God who have been made disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ who are called then to be making disciples for all of our days ahead until the Lord would call us home to worship Him and to serve Him for all eternity. So today is the fifth week in this five-week series we've called Nature and Nurture. Our nature is to be a people who are making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we've been walking through four distinctives of what that looks like. How we go about nurturing that as a church family and each of our ministries and our services and all that we do. And these four distinctives, we looked uh, first and foremost that, that we are a people that are based around the Word of God. A word focused people. We began that series in Psalm 119, the, the, the B letter there, that second little chunk in Psalm 119. And we said we are a people com committed to and devoted to the Word of God, to learning and living the Word of God. And so we found that there is incredible value in being a part of groups that aim to live and out the Word of God together. Not alone, but together. And that we are a people in worship, that we gather together as a multi-generational offering to the Lord, giving and serving and lifting our voices together. And so there are weeks, every week, that we will gather together as a corporate body when you will be able to sing a song like that joyfully and the person sitting behind you or beside you or in front of you has had an incredibly grievous week where they've been burdened. And it was all they could do to get here and so they on their own abilities have even a difficulty being able to sing. And yet you, by singing the things of Christ, you are encouraging your brothers and sisters as one body, worshiping our King. So we are a people devoted in this way to, to worship, this gospel-centered worship. And, and, and last week we looked over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 through 21, and we discussed how we are a people who are to be marked by service. We've looked at our text in Isaiah chapter 6 of, of Isaiah who goes for a man who says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I am of a people of unclean lips. And then the Lord meets his need and he, and he takes that burning coal and he, if you will, atones for its uncleanliness and his sin. And his immediate response upon the call of the Lord is, is who will go for me? Isaiah's response is what? Here I am, send me. And we discussed how the only reasonable response then last week to a people that have had their sin taken care of, who've been adopted by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, is to live a life of service. 
This is our markings. And, and last week we looked at how we do that is by hearing the word taught, so developing a desire to listen, by modeling it, by, by seeing it done and modeling for others what it means then to, to live it out. And as we see it done, we're deployed on a weekly basis then as we dismiss after our congregational prayer, we go forward to deploy to live out the Word of God in our relationships and our unique responsibilities and neighborhoods that God's entrusted to us. And then we come back together again and for a time of assessment to let the Word of God assess our lives, to comfort us, to, to encourage us, to convict us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness so that we can do that cycle again and again and again as servants of God for the glory of God. Now this morning we, we come to our text. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to John 19 as we discuss this distinctive of what it means to be the family of God. The family of God. I, I'm amazed, I encourage you, the next time you watch commercials, to listen for how often corporations use the word family. The word family is thrown around everywhere, kind of like the word love is thrown around everywhere. I laugh all the time when I hear about a middle school couple that's immediately saying after about a week or so of dating, I love you. Right? We use that word a lot, I love you. They love everything. I just love, this is love, this is the one. I love you. And the word family gets overused in our culture as well. And so you can go and, and you can discuss and, and there's a certain business that has a large group of stores and they say, we are the fill-in-the-blank family. This is our family. And that word family gets used so much that I think we can begin to, to disunderstand what, what that word truly means as we call it to a biblical sense of what a family is. Or even a sports team that develops a deep brotherhood or sisterhood together. That's my family. There's this deep tie and this bond that comes together. And when we come to a word like family, I also don't want to be ignorant of the fact that some of you are coming from situations where you've been in a very unhealthy family environment. And so for you, maybe when you hear the word family, you, your skin crawls. But when we look at what the biblical text says that you and I are truly family, we come to John 19 and we look at this text that you may not normally associate with what it means to actually be family together. As we look at this text, we'll see Jesus on the cross stripped naked. And he will give a statement regarding his material possessions as the, the four soldiers will gamble for his clothes. And we'll see before he breathes his final breath and gives up his spirit, he will refer to his familial responsibility to his mother and make a particular unique statement to John that I want to point out to us today. And then finally, after he has finished all the things and all the tasks and all the scriptures that the Lord had profited for him to do, he will give up his spirit. We're going to talk about each of those three elements and what those truths mean for us as we seek to truly live out what it means to be the family of God, one with another. So open in your text with me to John chapter 19, verses 23 through 24. As we notice, first and foremost, that, that we are family because Jesus gave up his material possessions. We are family because Jesus gave up his material possessions. I'll read for us 23 through 24 from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, please do grab a, a pew Bible right there in front of you. And it reads as this. John says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
So they said to one another, Let us not tear up, but cast lots for it to see uh, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these very things. It was normative in the culture for the, the soldiers that would execute an execution to, be, to receive bonus pay. And the bonus pay was the clothing of whatever the person that was being crucified would have on. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, it means Jesus would have been naked as he was crucified. That would have enhanced his shame and embarrassment. But it was also an extra payday, a perk of having the job of, of performing crucifixions. And so the soldiers, they're, they're good at math, so they realize there's four of them, and Jesus here, he's got all these different elements of clothing, and so each of them gets a piece. But what is unique about this crucifixion scene is that Jesus has a very fine piece of, piece of clothing. He has a tunic, and it's of great value. And so for the soldiers, if they would have cut it into force, it wouldn't have made any sense. It would have destroyed the value. So they cast lots to see who would receive the tunic. You know, on that point, I've wondered about those soldiers. We know very soon after this, this massive storm takes place and, and this earthquake takes place that, that they, they say, surely this was the Son of God. I wonder if the one that will receive the tunic later on in life ever became a Christian. Because I'd imagine if he won the drawing and how excited he would have been to win this valuable piece of clothing. And then as it sat in his house, assuming he didn't pawn it off, how immediately the understanding of what that piece of clothing was. To go from a reward to a reminder of the garment of the God-man whom he pierced. As a Christian, if he would have grown in this understanding, he would have realized it wasn't just his hands that crucified the king, but it was his sin. And as Christians, we know it was our sin that nailed the king who was willing to lay down even the last of his material possessions for our good and our blessing. Now, on several different occasions to the Gospel of John, Psalms are, are referenced. So one of the Psalms is referenced again and again, and that is Psalm 22. And if you have your pen, we're not going to look it up, but you can write that down. That's that's exactly what he quotes there in verse 24. So Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothes. A text written over a thousand years before Jesus would take on human flesh and dwell among us, fully God, fully man. These soldiers would fulfill the scriptures that were written of over a thousand years before they ever lived. Isn't that incredible? What are the chances of that? I'll give you another psalm to look up maybe on your own. Write down Psalm 41. Psalm 41, verse 9. What John does for us is he gives us these, these little cookies all along through this gospel that point out to us that Jesus has full knowledge of everything that's taking place, which makes it even more incredible to know what he's willfully doing. So Judas, as we look at the narrative all through the gospel of John, as he begins to take one step and another step and another step that will lead to his betrayal, Jesus knows exactly what's taking place. And Judas's betrayal, his hatred in this way of, of, of Jesus' rebellion against Christ, Jesus knows all about it. And you can write down the reference, John 13, 18. It's the scene in the Lord's Supper where Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. 
And he knows full well what Judas is doing. But in his sovereignty and his goodness, Jesus chooses to wash the feet of the man he knows will sell him off and that will lead to his execution. Our king was willing to lay down even the last of his material possessions for you and for I. See, a servant is willing to give over their material possessions because ultimately their material possessions are their kings. Our call in life as followers of Christ is to embrace a life of servanthood. That regardless of your age is to recognize that I am no longer Brent Bouldered on my own, but I am now belonging body and soul to Christ. I am Christ's. And how every day I forget that. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I forget that every day and I want to take up and say my stuff, my life, my marriage, my church. And yet I'm reminded again and again by the text, no, 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 no. I am Christ's. I'm a servant of Christ. This is his church. This is the child he's entrusted to me to point to Christ. We are Christ's. And a servant is able to look at their material possessions and say, no, 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 it's not mine. It's Christ's. It's God's. Jesus, to the very end of his life, would be willing to lay down his material possessions for us. So church, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us, Grace? It means that we are to ask the question on a regular basis, am I holding my material possessions in my life tighter than I am my church family. Think about it. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He has all the treasures of heaven. He had a physical treasurer on earth, Judas. And he also had the ability to pull change out of a fish's mouth. I mean, that'd be a rough day for that fish, but Jesus literally could have pulled out like a trillion dollars. Again, not a job I would want if I was that fish. But he could have done it. Jesus is fully God, fully man. And yet he was willing to lay down all of his material possessions in obedience to the Father, fulfilling the Scriptures, to purchase a people for his own possession. That's us. That's us. Do you know Jesus Christ as King? So I'm not saying that we have to look at our life and say, I need to give away everything that I have. But I do think on a consistent, daily, weekly basis, we need to ask His Holy Spirit who indwells us Spirit, is there anything in my life that I'm holding to so tight-handed? Is there any material possessions in my life that I'm holding to so tight-handed that I would be incredibly bitter towards you if you asked me to give it away? If you're not sure if there is and you're married, ask your spouse. If you have a kid, ask your kid. If you have a neighbor, ask your neighbor. But in reality... You and I probably know what it is because it probably comes into your mind immediately. And you say, not that. I know it because it happens in my heart as well. But our king, we're truly family church because our king would lay down his material possessions for us. Let's continue on in our text. We're family. Secondly, because Jesus gave over his relational responsibilities or he entrusted them over Verses 25 through 27, this is absolutely incredible. And as we walk through this, if you like symmetry, we begin in this scene with one Savior. Now we, we've looked at four soldiers and their behavior. 
who know the ways of the world and gaining power. And now we look at this contrast with four women. Four women in that culture that would have been very lowly. By the way, one of the evidences, we look at the Scriptures and say, yeah, this is definitely God that breathed and of God and not made up by men, is because who are the primary witnesses? We have the principle of embarrassment, as it's called, all throughout the Scriptures. If you and I were to make this up, who would we make be the primary witnesses of Jesus' resurrection? Who would be the first witnesses I would make? Caesar was strolling through, and Caesar saw it and said, Whoa! I don't know what woe is in Greek, but whoa! It'd be, and and, and, and it's, Jesus really is the God-man. This is great. And then I would have the, the, the chief Pharisees and the high priest come in and say, Whoa! Jesus really is the God-man. He's the whole time. Didn't even see it coming. But what did the Scriptures tell us? Who were the primary witnesses? Some women. Who are the majority of those that are faithful here to be at this crucifixion scene? They are women. The culture would have looked on them very lowly. And yet it records it because it's true. And so we see this contrast between four powerful soldiers and four lowly women. Let's read together as we look, church, at this reality that you and I are family because our king was willing to lay down and to give over, to entrust over his relational responsibilities as the one who perfectly honored his father and mother. Verse 25 through 27 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Again, I want to point out, John is not biologically related. But he declares, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own house, to his own home. This, the, the disciple took her to his own home. She had a room there with him. The soldiers knew what it was to be powerful in the world. But these women knew what it was to be family in the world. They understood in times of grief the ministry of presence. Let me say that again. They understood the significance in times of grief of the ministry of presence. Here these three ladies are with Mary Magdalene. I'm sorry, with Mary, Jesus' mother. As Jesus, her son, I can imagine no more grievous thing for a parent to endure than losing a child. And we have many members who have. And we love you and we thank you for being faithful to Christ and modeling for us, grieving through that experience and holding fast to Christ. We learn, for you. We learn from you when you model this for us, when we grieve with you. You model that for us as a church family. But I can imagine no more painful scene than a parent being at the scene of their child's unjust crucifixion. There's only one adult who's ever lived a sinless life, and it's Jesus. And it's Jesus that's being crucified. And here his mother is watching it happen. And these ladies come, and they stand beside her in the ministry of presence. 
uh, college students. I know we'll have more college students that will be here in a few weeks, but I want to speak to you in this time and teenagers as well that are here. You will have seasons in your life when you will lose loved ones. If you get married and you say that part about till death do us part, you're foreshadowing in reality one day one of you will die before the other. You will go through seasons of, of possibly a severe temptation, be it sexually or be it addiction. Some of you may suffer the, the heartache of divorce. Some of you will suffer the heartache of losing and bearing children. Some of you may go through prolonged seasons of sadness and depression. And that's why we believe it is so pivotal to be woven into the life of the church as a multi-generational body so that you can see it modeled. And some of you have already been through heartaches that are bigger than some of us can imagine. And when you choose to plug into the life of the body, we minister in our presence once together to love each other and to point each other to Christ. And we have a faith that endures all the seasons of life. We have a Savior that never forgets us, that never leaves us. We have a, a God who can identify and empathize with the greatest moments of grief that a human being can ever experience, and he will never leave us. And it's this King that we're, that's adopted us into a family. A family called to love one another, to serve one another. To be family. Not in a catchphrase. Not in a motto but to truly be family. So what did Jesus do with John? Now you remember, Jesus literally had brothers and sisters alive. When this scene happens, James, his brother, is alive. We know that he becomes a believer after the resurrection. And we'll see him later in Acts, and then we have the letter that James writes. But he doesn't say to Mary, Mary, behold, go, go to James' house, your son. Instead, he says to John, his follower, his disciple, and he says to Mary, his mother. And that's why we assume Joseph, the father, has already passed away at this, at this time, sometime before his adult ministry. What does he tell them? Mary? John? Mary, John's your son. Hey, John? Mary's your mom. And how did John take that command? From that day forward, Mary stayed with John. From that day forward, the call to Christ that Christ gives us as a, as a body of believers, as a body of believers, when we look around our church family, we don't want to look at other people that all look exact. You don't want to look at like a couple hundred bearded dudes that are in their 30s. That would be disturbing. I love bearded dudes in their 30s. I'm, I'm all for that. I don't want you to like leave and be like, man, Bryn just insulted me. I'm out of here. That's not what I'm getting at. But I'm getting at the fact that what happens in the local church is there should be this element where you look around the church, and I, and I mean this, so listen to what I'm saying. When you look around the church and you would say, you know what, I probably wouldn't just naturally chosen to be best friends with that person. Maybe that person wouldn't naturally be in my social circle, but you know what? They're family. That's my family. What do you do for your family as you're committed one to another as you go through seasons of difficulty and burden and hurt? You love each other and you care for each other. You have responsibility one for the other. So when your sibling gets, is in a bad situation, you go to them. If your sibling's making bad decisions, what do you do? You don't just sit back. You, you're invested in them. 
You care what happens in their life. And this is the call of Christ because our king was willing on, 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 the, on the, the very crucifixion cross to be able to be perfectly obedient and honor his father and mother. He would entrust that responsibility over to John in the church. And you and I have that same calling in our life to look around and say, no, 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 no. You are my family. I am invested in what happens in your life. And you're to be invested in what happens in my life. And we call these things the one another's of Scripture. Again and again and again, the one another's are called to to be lived out. The whole commandments, if you remember, the whole of the Ten Commandments is summarized in two commands. To love the Lord your God, the first half of the Ten Commandments, and to love your neighbor as yourself, it demonstrates the second half of the commandments. The one another's are everywhere. I want to give you a few of those. And if you don't have to write all these down. As a matter of fact, if you just Google it, the list of one another's, you'll find a large list there. But here's a couple of the commands that we are free now to walk in as brothers and sisters in Christ because Christ was willing to, to give over even his responsibilities while on the cross. You and I are called as, as people that live in Christ to love one another, to forgive one another. By the way, as a church, if we're called to forgive one another, what's the assumption that will happen? What will we do to one another? We'll hurt one another. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But we're called to do what? To forgive one another, to honor one another, to instruct one another, to greet one another, to edify one another, so to build up, to be kind to one another, to be compassionate to one another, to admonish one another. So when we start getting off course, no, 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 to admonish one another to encourage one another, to confess our sins one to another, to have concern for another. There's, there's more and more and more. But none of those things can happen in our life if we aren't committed to the Lord and therein take a step of commitment together. So I get asked the question sometimes, I, I love the Lord and I want to be right with Christ, but why do I have to be together with the local church family? In 1 Corinthians 12, he presents the church as like the church at Corinth. This is a representation of, of the body of Christ. But here's what's going to happen by default. I want you to imagine this in a moment. I think this is a good example. You may disagree, but I have a mic, so I'm going to give it to you anyway. So I want you to imagine we all stood up. Don't do it right now. But imagine we all stood up and the pews were out of our way. And I asked all of you to take one step closer towards me. By default of doing that, what will happen to you? You will become closer together. Take another step towards me. You'll become closer together. And eventually, we'll begin to almost be just bonded together as this one thing. When Jesus said, they'll know you by your fruit, but they said they'll know you by how you love one another. There's this understanding that if you and I are growing in Christ-likeness, what will happen? We'll begin to grow in our burden, in our debt of loving one another. Because we'll see the faith isn't just about me and my Lord, but it's about me and the family of my Lord living out the mission that the Lord has given us together to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, they will know us by our fruit. They will know us by our love one for another. And Jesus prayed for unity among his church and may we continue to live that out by forgiving and growing in a love for one another. So our king, what did he do? He was willing to give over his material possessions, even to the point of death on the cross. He was willing to give over his relational responsibilities, even to the point of death on the cross. And thirdly, we are family because Jesus gave up his spirit, verse 28 through 30. 
And this, Jesus knowing that all, that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus' miracles, they testify of his divinity. And all through the scriptures, like little fingerprints left by God, are these messianic prophecies, these prophecies that would foretell hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he would come. God would give us all these fingerprints through the Old Testament that would give us a clear character sketch of who Jesus would be, who the Messiah would be, who the sent one of God who would break every chain would be. And Jesus fulfills them all, even here at his very last moment. So the soldiers who are doing what they desire to do are fulfilling the scriptures as well, and they take, what's it say specifically? They take what would be sour wine or cheap wine. They take something here at the very end, and they dip it, and they're to give it to Jesus. And this itself is fulfilling the scriptures and this very action that they do. So I'll, I'll have you write it down. I won't give you time to flip there, but write down Psalm 69, 21. Psalm 69, 21, it says this. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That was written a thousand years before this scene historically happened. So the soldiers crucifying Jesus, they take this sour wine and they give it to Jesus. Fulfills the scriptures. Earlier in the scene, if you remember, they offer him wine to dull the pain as an act of mercy. But does Jesus take and drink? No. It's because he took the full brunt of our sin without having it numbed at all. He took the full consequence of our sin that was placed on his body on the cross. That's our king. That's the one we worship. That's the one we sing to. That's the one we're called to make followers after and to live to follow consistently in our lives. That's our king. Do you know him? Do you know this king that to the very end he fulfills the scriptures? Do you remember what Satan tried to do in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation into the wilderness? What did Satan try to do to Jesus? He tried to get him glory apart from suffering. Do you remember that? The 40 days of temptation in the wilderness? He offers to Jesus and he says to Jesus, hey listen, I'll give you everything. I'll give you the kingdom. Just bow right now. But Jesus knew why he had came. He had come to live a sinless life, to fulfill the scriptures, and to suffer. To pay for a family in obedience to the Father. Our king didn't avoid suffering. Our king bore the full weight of sin and death. He would drink this cup of suffering till his final days. My heart breaks when I see my son Uriah. He's only 16 months. But wired into this little man, this little boy, is every time he does something cool in his mind, he's looking at me. And he'll keep doing it until he sees me do it. And what's he do right after? You know what I'm talking about? He hungers 
for the approval of his father. He hungers for the approval of his father. Listen, because Jesus Christ gave up his spirit for us. You and I don't have to try to say, accept me please. Rather, you trust in the one who is truly sinless, who bore it all on his body to break every chain for you in obedience to the Father. You are acceptable before God by trusting in Jesus. You and I are family together by trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's what baptism is such a beautiful demonstration because it's, it's an act that says, Hey, by the way, turns out we're family. Turns out I'm family. Turns out we're family. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that's true? It's who we are. Let's nurture that in our lives together. Our next steps are this. And you'll see this statement as well as all of our previous ones at the end of our bulletin and in the future here. On the very front page, this description of what it means to be the family of God, what we're aiming for as a body, as a, as a, as a key marker of who we are as a church family, as Grace Bible Church, that we are committed to building community as a church family, being renewed by the power of Christ's love. Listen to this. That we aim to care for one another by faithfully practicing the many one another passages, to love one another, to forgive one another, to honor one another, to instruct one another to greet one another, to be kind to one another, to be compassionate to one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to confess to one another. Why? For the glory of God and the good of the body. For the glory of God and the good of the body. For the glory of God and the good of the family. We are a family of God because our king willfully surrendered his material possessions, his relational responsibilities, and his very spirit. This is our call to be people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who are committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ by distinctives of commitment to the Word, gospel-focused worship, sacrificial service, and a commitment to practice the one another's until our Lord calls us home. And by the way, what will you and I be doing for eternity as we worship Christ? We'll be perfectly practicing the one another's. Isn't that beautiful? To love one another today on earth is to practice what we'll be doing forever, church. To worship the King together is to practice what we'll be doing forever, glorifying and magnifying our King. We are family because of our King. Let's pray together. Father, you are our, our living hope. You have given us hope in your Son, Jesus Christ, who before the foundations of the world, you would decree that he would come, that he would take on the fullness of man, that he would be tempted in every way, that he would live a sinless life, he would lay his life down on the cross, he would defeat death, and you would raise him again from the grave. And we believe, Lord, that he has ascended to the right hand, to your right hand, as the God-man where he listens to our prayers, where he intercedes for us, and we thank you, God, that you have adopted us into a body that we worship together, that we sing together, that we are not alone, 
but we are truly family. We are truly acceptable. That we don't have to run in our lives to try to make ourselves pleasing that maybe we can earn this adoption, but we've received this adoption through faith alone in Christ alone, and we are unashamed to be your people, to be your disciples. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would craft us into the church you call us to be. Lord, I lift up to you every man in this room, and I pray, God, you would give us a burden to live under the responsibility that you've called us to, to be people who are captivated by your grace, who are called to make disciples in all responsibilities. And I lift up to you every woman in this room, and I pray, God, that you would nurture her, and Lord, you would develop her and grow her in godliness as she aims to be the woman you're calling her to be. We thank you, God, that we are acceptable as your family because of what Christ has done for us by spilling his blood on the cross. We are your people, and we are unashamed of that reality today. We love you, and we give you glory, and we thank you that we have a true and living hope who has broken every chain. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said together, amen. Let's sing.